What's going on, everybody, and welcome in to this edition of B-Shape Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you in the early morning hours just after midnight on Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. We are post-MLB trade deadline, and the Cardinals made a couple more splashes on Tuesday, right before the 5 p.m. deadline, or in the hours leading up to it, rather. Cardinals making a couple more deals, solidifying their stance as sellers of short-term assets ahead of this deadline. The Cardinals trading Paul DeYoung and Jack Flaherty on Tuesday. We'll talk tonight on B-Shape Daily about the return for those deals and how we reflect upon the Cardinals' approach to the trade deadline in general this year. Now that it's in the rearview mirror, how do we think they did? How do we think they made good on the expectations that they kind of set for themselves when it comes to how they would handle this situation as sellers for the first time in the John Mosellock era? I think there are many aspects of this to dive into and so we'll talk about as many of them as we can get to tonight as well as maybe some sprinkled in commentary from the Cardinals 3-2 loss on Tuesday to the Minnesota Twins could not get the bats going in that one Arenado had a base hit that earned him an RBI and Tyler O'Neill with a late home run but other than that not much to speak of when it came to the Cardinals offensively tonight Despite Miles Michaelis pitching a pretty good game, bullpen throwing a couple of zeros up thereafter, it wasn't enough for the Cardinals on Tuesday. Most of our time is going to be spent reflecting upon the trade deadline. So I want to remind you guys to subscribe to this channel on YouTube if you haven't done so already, but you enjoy St. Louis Cardinals content. That's the combination of the types of people that should be hitting the subscribe button, clicking like on this video, and dropping your comment below with what you think about how the Cardinals handled the MLB trade deadline this season. You can follow the B-Shave Daily Podcast, the Daily Cardinals podcast that we do, posting much of the episodes here on YouTube. But you can follow the podcast, B-Shave Daily, on Spotify and subscribe on Apple Podcasts as well. Make sure to rate and review and give five stars on those apps if you decide to go that route with a new follow and subscription over there. And also want to mention, if you'd like to take your support of the content on this channel to the next level, you can go to patreon.com slash bshafer12. And I'll try to put the link in the description. I had somebody message me on Twitter recently asking about the link to the Patreon, and I kind of forget that I may talk about it, but I never actually tend to put it in the description of the video. That should be fixed this time on YouTube if you would like to check that out. Sometimes some bonus content, but otherwise just a nice way to support if you enjoy the content here. I may do a YouTube membership thing at some point, but I haven't learned enough about that to know exactly what that would entail or if people would be interested in that. So I've held off on that for right now. But Let's go ahead and jump into the Cardinals talk tonight as the Cardinals did make two deals on Tuesday prior to the deadline. We know the moves they made Sunday trading Jordan Montgomery and Chris Stratton to the Rangers. They traded Jordan Hicks to the Blue Jays and they had already dealt with the Blue Jays with the Genesis Cabrera deal for Sammy Hernandez, the catching prospect a number of days prior. Remember Cabrera had been DFA'd and so at that point for the Cardinals they were just trying to get whatever they could for him. The Hicks deal got a couple of good pitchers in return in Sam Robertson and Adam Kloffenstein. And then again today on Tuesday, the Cardinals dealing with the Blue Jays for the third time in about a 10 or 11 day span, trading shortstop Paul DeYoung to Toronto in exchange for, well, Matt Sponson is the young man's name. He's a 24 year old minor league reliever and has only really pitched at the lower levels of the minors so far, splitting his time. So far this season between low A and high A in the Toronto Blue Jays organization. But between those two levels, some pretty good numbers, a 1.11 ERA as a reliever. Now, as a 24-year-old reliever, you'd probably expect him to be accelerated a little bit beyond the high A level to this point if he's going to be considered a real prospect. 
Uh, was not ranked, I don't believe, in the top 30 for the Toronto Blue Jays, according to MLB Pipeline and their prospect rankings. I don't know that he ended up in the Cardinals' top 30 either. Probably not going to, right? This is a 24-year-old who has only advanced beyond high A. I think he had actually gotten called up to double A recently, but had not pitched yet there with the Blue Jays. And so perhaps that means he will land at double A Springfield for the Cardinals. If that has been answered, it's not an answer that I know. Uh, I did not get to sit in on John Mozeliak's pregame media availability around 6.15 today as I was still driving into Bush Stadium at that time. But the way I react to this one, like I said, uh, 1-1 ERA in between high A and low A. I think 39 strikeouts in 30 innings, something to that nature when it comes to Matt Svonson, the 24-year-old they picked up for Paul DeYoung. The reason the return is going to feel a little light to Paul DeYoung, and I, and I understand that a lot of Cardinals fans had that response, to say, oh, really, that's all we got for a guy that, you know, been in the Cardinals organization for a long time, has been at the major league level for quite a while, is I would say back to where you consider Paul DeYoung a proven commodity. You know, he had a couple of really rough seasons in 2021 and 2022, was able to bounce back to a a pretty good effect this year, I would say. The OPS around 710, which isn't otherworldly for Paul DeYoung, but it's definitely above the productivity that he had shown in the previous couple of seasons. Remember last year spent a lot of time at AAA, just couldn't really find himself. And it was kind of some dark times for Paul DeYoung. But I think he deserves credit for making it back to the big leagues in a meaningful way, the way that he did this year for the Cardinals. And there for a while, he was really looking like he might force the Cardinals' hand on whether or not they would pick up that $12.5 million option for 2024. Ultimately, I think the numbers started to decline a little bit and the Cardinals recognized that they were out of the race and that that $12.5 million contract for next year, probably not an option they were going to pick up. Uh, They still were going to be on the hook for the buyout, though, and that led to the Cardinals, I think, making the choice to say if we can trade Paul DeYoung somewhere that he can join a contender, maybe get a piece back in return for him. You'll probably have to pay some of the money, at least the buyout, because the other team that acquires him isn't going to want to have to front for that after just having him as a rental player. But ultimately, it's also a space-clearing move as the Cardinals can now sort of look to the moment that Mason Wynn could join the team in St. Louis. John Mozeliak was asked about that within recent days and said, I don't know exactly when that button might get pushed, but do I envision a scenario where he could be at the big leagues in 2023? Yes, I do. That was from Cardinals president of baseball operations, John Mozeliak, before the trade of Paul DeYoung. Now that the trade has happened, I think it's reasonable to expect that sometime later in August, we would see Mason win at the big league level if he continues to progress the way that he has at the minor league level for the Cardinals. He's got an OPS up to 823 coming into today, which is pretty nice for the season for Mason win. 16 home runs, uh, has had some pretty good plate discipline, just really balanced numbers, hitting around 280 on base around 340, 350, and slugging in the, the 470 range. So really having a nice balanced season and showcasing the various skills that he possesses. I think he's going to be a solid player at the big league level for the Cardinals. And as we've talked about on the show, it is ideal to get him into a situation where Mason Wynn can come up to the major leagues this year for whatever period of time that looks like and kind of get his feet wet, get his feet underneath him ahead of a 2024 season that the Cardinals have at least vocally talked about they're prioritizing. They're going to make every effort to compete and win in 2024. And I think Wynn is going to be a part of that. I think whether he's the everyday shortstop or he bounces around the diamond a little bit because I know he's played some other positions, including second base in the minors. Cardinals obviously have a lot of guys who can do that. 
But we do have to get to the Brendan Donovan news, the news that we kind of figured could be coming with regard to flex or tendon surgery that was announced today. But let's go ahead and wrap up our thoughts on the Paul DeYoung trade. I just think when you consider where the Cardinals had fallen in the standings and the fact that everybody else that was a rental player, they were really looking to see what value they could get for them. It made sense to do the same with Paul DeYoung. The Cardinals do end up eating, I think, a little bit more money than the buyout. They're going to pay some of his salary for the rest of this 2023 season as well. But they get a piece for him. They clear a roster spot. Again, I don't think Paul DeYoung was going to be part of the organization beyond the end of this season. I think it's best for everybody to give him a chance to go somewhere where he can win, can play for something meaningful, give the Cardinals a chance to recoup at least a low-level prospect, a guy that could potentially never manifest at the big league level. But at 24 years old, a relief pitcher, it's good to have the possibility of calling up those kinds of guys as the Cardinals obviously are going to have to remake their bullpen for 2024. So this guy's a depth piece. I don't know where he ends up, probably double A. But because of, I guess, his lack of a prospect pedigree, he was one of probably the lesser names at this deadline that the Cardinals acquired in terms of the hype surrounding him. So we'll see what ends up happening with Matt Svonson. But I think it makes a lot of sense for the Cardinals to go ahead and move on from Paul DeYoung. Now, clear the way for Mason Wynn, which is something that they'll likely pursue later on in August. Why not right away would be a reasonable question you'd ask about the Mason Wynn scenario. The reason behind it is I think the Cardinals would have half a mind or more to maintain his rookie eligibility. And if he comes up right now, there's a pretty good chance that not only with the at-bats that he would probably take, but also I believe just the number of days he would spend on a big league roster that he that would be in jeopardy if he were to be called up in the early portion of August. I think if you wait to mid to late August, there's an exact day that somebody will know, and it will be somebody with the Cardinals that knows it, to make sure that they don't jeopardize that rookie eligibility if it's something they value. And I think it probably should be something they value because you are in a lost season right now. There's nothing you can gain in the standings necessarily by bringing Mason Wynn up right away. Like, sure, he could be a spark plug and you could go win a bunch of games, but realistically, the Cardinals with the way that they have just dismantled the pitching staff at this trade deadline, they're not vying for anything legitimately over the next two months. It's just, it's not their year. We've all kind of come to accept and understand that, I think, to this point, which is, by the way, reflected in the results of the polls that I put out on Twitter because I decided to just run, do you like the trade? And I listed the names and everything that was involved in each trade. And all of the, the, the Cardinals trades, I think there were basically the four main ones that were made. Of all the big four polls that I did, it seemed like overwhelmingly Cardinals fans approved. On the DeYoung deal, it was 88% said, yes, I like the deal. On the Jordan Hicks deal, it was 91%. 91% as well on the Texas Rangers deal that sent Montgomery and Stratton for Tacoa Roby, Thomas to JC and John King, who, by the way, John King got a chance to pitch tonight. And checking my Twitter timeline here, the other one that I put out was today's Jack Flaherty trade, which had an 82% approval rating. So by and large, Cardinals fans, I think, understand where the Cardinals are at this point and are accepting of the fact that John Mosellock and company had to trade away some of these short-term assets to try and get some help to, at a minimum, restock the system. I know the way that John Mosellock framed it was trying to get guys that can help in 2024 said an eye on 2025, though, would also be a consideration. But if you recall the quote, 2026 still feels like a long ways away. And so those types of prospects weren't necessarily the priority for the Cardinals. I think they only ended up with a couple of guys that you could argue are still so far away that it's not likely to see them impact the team until 2026. Largely everybody they picked up will be 
potentially making landfall in St. Louis over the next two years. But when it comes to Mason Wynn and his rookie eligibility for 2024, the reason that the Cardinals would desire to maintain that is not just for the superficial reason of, oh, it would be cool to have a rookie of the year and to have Wynn be eligible for that award. There would actually be a legitimate basis for the Cardinals having interest in that outcome from a competitive standpoint. Remember the new rules in effect that say if you bring up a guy who is rookie eligible on opening day and he's there with you for, I don't know the exact number, but it's basically the bulk of the season, that guy can end up winning the Rookie of the Year award and netting your organization a compensation pick that would potentially be after the first round of the following MLB draft. There's another layer to it that could be uh, involving compensation in subsequent compensatory rounds, but draft picks are basically up for grabs here for teams that I think the reason they put it in is to try and discourage the notion of gaming the service time for young, talented players. We all know that over the years this has happened where guys are kept in the minor leagues for the first few weeks of a season just so that the team can buy an extra year of control in terms of service time for those players. To try and discourage that behavior, MLB has put this in place. The Seattle Mariners have already taken advantage of this with the Rookie of the Year award that Julio Rodriguez won last year, and he was on the roster from opening day, wins the award. The Mariners got a draft pick earlier this month. Uh, I guess not this month anymore because now it's August. But yeah, they got a draft pick at the MLB draft that was hosted in Seattle their uh, uh, All-Star weekend. So that's something I think the Cardinals would have interest in at least remaining eligible for that when it comes to Mason Witt. I don't know if the Cardinals would be eligible for that when it comes to Jordan Walker because I think he was he may have been down in AAA too long for that to have uh, to, to get the credit for that. I'm not 100% sure on that, but nevertheless, it doesn't appear that Jordan Walker will be winning the Rookie of the Year award. I think Corbin Carroll pretty much has that sewed up for the Arizona Diamondbacks. But anyway, I think it would make sense for the Cardinals to, if they want to kind of game it a little bit, game, it's not really gaming the service time. It's just gaming the call-up to make sure that you have the benefit of at least being eligible for that Rookie of the Year bonus should Mason Wynn have a huge 2024 season after starting the year on the opening day roster. Uh, which at this point I would definitely expect him to start the 2024 season on the roster from day one, and we're going to see him in 2023 as well. And I guess his performance down the stretch will color whether or not the Cardinals, you know, kind of how they view him for 2024 as well. But based on the pedigree of the prospect and what we've seen from him at the minor league level, I think he is a major league-ready defensive shortstop. There were some questions about how much the bat would translate and how quickly he could maybe grow that tool and when he got to the big leagues, like, what would he be? He's got great speed and athleticism, but is he really going to have enough on-base ability and, and contact ability to be a leadoff guy or somebody that bats in the higher portion of the lineup? Will he be a powerful enough hitter to bat in the middle of the lineup, or is he maybe a bottom third type of guy? Uh, he may still be a bottom third type of guy, but I think he's closer and closer to proving his major league readiness. Maybe he's already proven it, and it's just a matter of the Cardinals needing to find the space for him to play. I think with the Paul DeYoung trade, if you don't like the return they got for DeYoung, try looking at it more as a Mason Wynn deal because I think, in essence, that's exactly what you're going to find that it is. With Mason Wynn, he's going to be with the Cardinals at some point in August. That is my prediction. I don't think it's just going to be strictly a September call-up. Um, obviously, he's not on the 40-man roster yet, but when they put him there, I think you'll see Mason Wynn before too long and, and probably in a regular role. Tommy Edmond was a starting shortstop tonight. We know they've preferred to play him in the outfield from time to time, and uh, there for a while, 
with some guys that were on the injured list, including Tyler O'Neill. That was sort of his regular standing. But now without DeYoung and still no Mason Wynn just yet, I think Tommy will be getting the bulk of the time at shortstop until we do see the Cardinals' top prospect make his arrival in St. Louis. But let's go ahead and talk about another implication on the infield situation before we dive into the Jack Flaherty trade right here on Beach Shafe Daily. And by the way, we'd love to have your comments on YouTube. Make sure to subscribe to the channel. Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer, talking Cardinals baseball all year long. I write my Cardinals articles for KMOV, cover the team, boots on the ground as often as I can be at Bush Stadium, and uh, was there today for the 3-2 loss to the Minnesota Twins. But yeah, this is a good place for Cardinals content. So if you enjoy the St. Louis Cardinals and you enjoy hearing people talk about them, who have at least like some idea what they're talking about. I rarely know very much of what I'm talking about, but I, you know, I try. But if you enjoy the content, make sure to hit that subscribe button, give a like to this video, and leave your comments below discussing how you react to the Cardinals' performance, at least the performance of the front office at this MLB trade deadline. But I want to talk about Brendan Donovan because this is something that we've been anticipating for a little while. I have spoken about the possibility on B-Shafe Daily that ultimately this flexor tendon soreness, this injury to the arm, the throwing arm of Brendan Donovan, the Cardinals utility ace defender who is fresh off of his utility gold glove award that he earned last season. Yeah, he hasn't been able to throw recently due to this arm soreness. It's with the flexor tendon from what we understand. I do believe the Cardinals listed it as elbow. And now checking through some of the reports from those who were there to hear John Mozeliak speak just before Tuesday's game, it will be the internal brace surgery for Brendan Donovan. It will end his season. He'll be getting the ligament, a ligament in his elbow repaired, but it is different than Tommy John's surgery. It is the same surgery that Seth Manus had. If you recall the Cardinal reliever who had an elbow surgery that wasn't quite the same as Tommy John, the differences I'm not up enough on the medicals to know, but it is a shorter recovery time. Generally, I believe that's why it was preferred by a guy like Seth Manus. It was kind of a newer thing back then. They call it the modified internal brace procedure. It is an elbow, ultimately, not just the flexor, which, again, you can kind of recall back to, I'm thinking Miles Michaelis had a flexor situation, and I believe his surgery was for the flexor tendon, which is further up toward the wrist. But a lot of times, all of these ligaments are kind of interconnected and intertwined, and so you can often see a flexor forearm kind of injury end up showing some damage to the the ligament and the elbow and that ends up being the case for Brendan Donovan. So he's getting the surgery. The surgery, I believe, is happening Wednesday in Dallas. I'm checking Jeff Jones's timeline here. He mentioned that it's the same surgeon that performed the flexor tendon repair for Packy Naughton, who's currently on the injured list, the Cardinals' left-handed relief pitcher. All of the details and minutia of exactly what it is don't matter as much as the bottom line, which is that the expectation from the Cardinals is that Brendan Donovan will be ready to go for spring training which if you take about a six-month recovery time, I think that's the estimate. You go from the beginning of August, September, October, November, December, January, February. You're kind of at that timeline in early February to where hopefully by mid-February when spring training really gets rolling, Brendan Donovan is ready to resume his status as the -the all-over-the-field guy that he has been for the Cardinals when he's been able to play the field. Recently, he's been just a designated hitter, The value to a team that would be contending, I think, would be enough that you'd have to maybe make a different decision or at least think long and hard about what that looks like. Maybe having Brendan Donovan continue to play till the end of the year, kind of like Bryce Harper did for the Phillies last year, 
And then he had, I believe his was Tommy John. I don't know if his was was a full TJ or if it was this internal brace repair uh, procedure, the one that Donovan's going to have. But at any rate, we can recall that Bryce Harper, who's not a pitcher, obviously, and so uh, sometimes even for position players relative to pitchers, you can see a, uh, a swifter recovery time. He was back in the lineup for Philadelphia in early May, only missed the month of April, but only recently has begun playing first base. So I, I think it's a little bit premature to just assume that it's going to be a, a complete ready to go by spring training. But I think the hope would be that by the end of spring training, Donovan should be fully ramped up. Um, and again, the Cardinals say he'll be ready to go by spring training, according to uh, the tweet I'm seeing here from Daniel Guerrero of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, who was there at Bush Stadium today when Mo spoke. And uh, he wrote a story about what to expect on Donovan when it comes to uh, his situation. That's at STL today, worth checking out for sure. But basically, my read on it is because the Cardinals aren't contending, it makes perfect sense to go ahead and have Donovan have this surgery now. They kick the can down the road. They tried alternatives to avoid the surgical option, which is always kind of the last resort because you know it means a longer recovery time. But ultimately, Donovan got the second opinion down in Dallas. I believe Dr. Meister, Meister, one of the two on the pronunciation there, is the name of the surgeon who gave him the second opinion and will perform the procedure. I think it's the right move to do it now because uh, as much as it's great seeing Brendan Donovan continue to hone his game offensively, for him to reach and and achieve his full value on a daily basis for the Cardinals, it has to be a guy that is playing the field because he can do a little bit of everything wherever you put him, corner outfield, anywhere on the infield. I'm sure you could stick him in center field if you had to, although Tommy Eben kind of uh, has the lock on infielders who can play a good center field. But Brendan Donovan is just so valuable because the Cardinals don't have to really think about it too much. The flexibility that he provides just makes it so much easier to fill out a lineup card and, and put the rest of the guys where they need to be on a given day. So I think it makes perfect sense for the Cardinals to and for Brendan Donovan to to take this step at this point, make sure that he is as close to ready as humanly possible by spring training in 2024, which again is where the Cardinals are gearing up for a run. That has to be the expectation. That is the way the Cardinals have described things. And so I think anything less would be a massive disappointment. The Cardinals have left this trade deadline without really answers for the 2024 rotation. They're still going to have to come up with, I think, three names. I don't think just relying upon anybody that's from an internal perspective, even for your number five starter spot, is a wise thought process or approach when you come into spring training in February because we know guys end up getting hurt in spring training in February and I, I just don't think it would be wise for the Cardinals to kind of enter in the same situation they were in last year with saying oh it's an internal competition for the number five spot and, and we'll kind of see how everything shakes out if everybody stays healthy and I guess that's really not what they did they kind of had the five that they figured they had guys though like Dakota Hudson and Libertor on the periphery that were quote-unquote competing but I think you kind of need to nail it down a little bit better this year. And yeah, the depth is great. It's important to have it. But I also just think to be realistic about if this Cardinals team is going to improve in a marked way from 23 to 24, it's going to be because the rotation looks completely different. And if you're talking about Michaelis and Steven Matz as the two that you know about, and beyond that, you've got question marks. I think you're going to have to find a way to replace, first of all, re replicate the production of Flaherty and Montgomery. Like, you got to get guys at least that good. And Monty was like a 3-3 ERA, Flaherty more of a 4-4. So it might be a little easier to find the guy who can do what Flaherty's brought to the table this year. But Montgomery is maybe not going to be that easy to find a replacement for in free agency to do as well as Montgomery. But then you've obviously got to 
find guys that do even better than what you had because uh, this rotation hasn't cut the mustard this year. Adam Wainwright is arguably going to be relatively easy to replace in terms of finding a guy that can perform better than the kind of high fives or the six ERA that Waino has produced, but at the same time is just improving in that one spot from uh, a guy like Wainwright who has really struggled this year to uh, a starting pitcher who could be considered like a legit number three or number four. Is that enough to transform the entire nature of the rotation, especially when you can count on injuries taking place? Like I know John Moselec has used the injury excuse this year as a reason that they've struggled. He's talked about it a lot when it comes to the outfield. Guys like Tyler O'Neill and Lars Newbar, he said combined, those two have essentially missed a full season's worth of one of our outfield spots. And that's fair to say, but I think the main problem with this Cardinals team has been the pitching. And yes, there have been some injuries to the bullpen, namely Ryan Helsley. But the biggest problem is with that lack of consistency in the rotation, you've got some questions to be answered when you get to assume that, oh, it's going to be a competitive team in 2024 because we're going to address it in the starting rotation and free agency and via the trade market this offseason. That's great if you do that, but I think there are a lot of similarities that we can project from this year's rotation to next year's in the guys that are returning, the, the Michaelis and the Mats of it all, and then the ones that are not returning well, two of the three have actually not been all that problematic in terms of Flaherty and Montgomery. So it's going to be very interesting to see how the Cardinals approach it, but I think it's not going to be with half measures. If they're going to legitimately make the run, it's going to be because they, they prioritized it, they spent money on it, they traded, maybe made some difficult deals to acquire quality starting pitching, and they didn't just rely upon the internal options and the options that they acquired at this deadline to say, oh, those are guys that can maybe make their mark they can compete for opportunity as, as young pitchers on the rise. I think it's a dangerous route to go given the way the, the starting pitching essentially sank this season for St. Louis. So to make sure that doesn't happen again next year, they're going to have to have a splashy off season. It's not always about winning the off season. The Cardinals are going to kind of have to win the off season with the giving some confidence to this team about the pitchers that they acquire to fill the holes in the rotation. But I think Brendan Donovan is another important part of that. And so, like I mentioned before the little tangent, important to have him ready to go as much as you possibly can for 24. It goes in line with the way I talked about Mason Wynn that, hey, don't talk in 2024 about how, well, this is a young team and that's why the Cardinals aren't able to succeed. Like I'm trying to cut them off at the pass with the things that they might be able to say and use as excuses for next year because next year there just won't be any excuses. There will be the emperor will have no clothes so to speak, like John Moselak will have nothing left to say if he doesn't figure out a way to put a winning product on the field next year. I know Bill DeWitt has said that Mo will finish out his contract regardless, but I don't believe that. I don't believe that John Moselak will still be in the same role following a 2024 season if it goes the way 2023 is gone. I think preaching patience and being willing to allow the current regime to try and work its way out of the hole that it has dug is a somewhat reasonable answer by ownership. I, I don't, I'm not surprised they're doing it, first of all, because of the strong relationship between DeWitt and John Moselak. But also, like, I don't really have a huge problem with it. I know Fire Mo is kind of the thing that a lot of people want to want to say. But if you look back, again, no losing season since he took over in 2007. Uh, that's a pretty remarkable task. They had a losing season in 07. They fired Walt Jockety as a result. They promoted John Moselak, and he's not had a losing season at this point, it's going to happen this year. It looks like the Cardinals are not going to get to 81 wins. 
And so as a result, it's going to be the situation that they're in for the first time of the Mosellac era. I'm willing to say as long as there are declarations, and actually I don't even care what they say publicly because a lot of times when they declare something, it almost puts them in a bind and forces them into a box that potentially could lead to bad decisions in the offseason. Like when they said, oh, we're going to get a catcher. It's like, did you really need to say that? Did you need to bury Andrew Kisner under the bus that way when in fact you probably could have you know, pursued catchers, but you didn't need to tell the world and telegraph it. I know that there's an element of fans want to hear kind of the rah-rah speech going into an offseason so that they can have things to be excited about. But functionally, to say it's got to be a catcher, I think they kind of painted themselves into a corner with that. And then when it did not work out with Sean Murphy, being able to acquire him for a reasonable price via trade, it kind of led them to the doorstep of Wilson Contreras where they maybe were willing to overlook some aspects that weren't as rosy about his profile as a defensive catcher because they had already been on record saying we're going to make a splash at catcher. And so they kind of felt like adding Tucker Barnhart to Andrew Kisner and Yvonne Herrera maybe wasn't going to be the answer that sufficed at that point after they had already been so loud in proclaiming, hey, we're going to fix the catcher. They've done it in previous offseasons as well that I've covered this team when it comes to the outfield. That was kind of the uh, the offseason with the, the Dexter Fowler signing. The Ozuna trade was very similar. They had come into certain offseasons really proclaiming that they were going to make splashes at these given positions. And then when maybe their first or second options go off the board, they feel compelled to overpay for something, whether that's via dollars or via trade, uh, just to make sure that they, they make the splash that they intended to make and that they publicly proclaimed that they would. So I don't really care if they say we're going to sign a pitcher worth $100 million this offseason and they like guarantee it and they puff their chest about it. I don't think they'll do that specifically, but I really don't care what John Mozalek says at the, the end of season presser on October, whatever it ends up being. It'll probably be a little earlier this year than usual, um, given, you know, the, the last place of it all. But I don't even think it's a benefit to say, hey, we are going to sign three starting pitchers or whatever it is that he's going to say. Just go out and do it. I mean, just let it happen. Sign the guys, whether it's a Lucas Giolito or a Blake Snell or an Aaron Nola or a combination of them or the Yamamoto kid from Japan that's, I think, going to post and, and throws triple digits and is, is probably the guy that I would stump for the most. I, I don't know 100% with how it will work with the posting system and what it'll cost, but it's just money, baby. You got to sign him. You got to sign some of these guys to fix this rotation because if you can spend and allow the rotation to become a strength rather than a bonafide, glorified, absolute weakness the way that it has been this year for St. Louis, that does kind of flip the entire thing on its head. You look at an offense that will rank inside the top 10, most likely, and run scored by the end of the season. I, I still anticipate, even with the recent slump, that that's definitely projectable for the Cardinal offense. The bullpen's going to have to be remade, and that's a little bit more of a nuanced process. But rotation, it's pretty simple. you got to find some guys who are proven or some guys that you can really legitimately project are going to be ready to go by 2024, even if they're... Because, again, Yamamoto is not, per se, proven at the big league level, but you can look at him and his numbers in Japan and go, oh, he's about to be a dude, I think, when he crosses the pond. So it's going to have to be that situation for me, for the Cardinals, to make sure that they are legitimately making good on the whole notion of maintaining and retaining all the players that they kept. I mean, we'll still talk to Jack Flaherty trade tonight, but I, I take a moment to mention, like, the five guys that they dealt were all rental players. They didn't deal anyone that was under a true contract for 2024 because DeYoung's numbers had declined to the point that they just were not going to pick up that option on his deal. 
So you're talking about rentals and the returns that the Cardinals got in these deals were the types of returns that you get for rental players. I don't think they're bad returns, but I think you had to be realistic about how transformative these moves could be. And maybe Moselec would regret the way that he phrased it, saying we're going to prioritize 2024 and the deals that we make, because I think a lot of fans then had the hope that you would get some guys that were at least solid AAA arms or guys that had some little bit of MLB experience, a cup of coffee at the big league level. And when the Cardinals ultimately really didn't do that, other than John King, who had a scoreless inning of relief tonight, but has like a 570 ERA before coming into St. Louis on the year. So I don't know that King is necessarily going to be a fixture. He may not even be somebody they retain for next year. I think it's going to be obviously performance dependent. It was a good start for him tonight by getting the scoreless inning of relief in his first Cardinal appearance. But absolutely, this is a situation where the Cardinals knew what they were dealing, knew that they had a, a list of players and they needed to check them off one by one. Get them off my roster was the way that Andy Humphrey, my co-host on the big show, KTGR, phrased it throughout the week to just not say that these players stink, but that the Cardinals are in a position where it doesn't make any sense for them to retain their rentals, retain the guys that are going to free agency in a couple of months. There were the smoke screens of sorts when it came to the Jordan Hicks extension. Maybe they'll sign Flaherty to one. And it was never realistic, I think, uh, honestly, for either of those to come to fruition, unless you were getting a team-friendly deal that you didn't expect. As we said on B-Shape Daily, we kind of saw those situations pretty well, I think, to where those didn't materialize because the Cardinals and the the representation for those players, uh, I don't think the Flaherty talks really ever happened, but the Hicks talks probably stalled rather quickly when the Cardinals maybe came to the table with what they thought would be a realistic ask. And then with what Jordan Hicks had the expectations for or his representation, it just didn't land. And that's why you saw him traded. But for all the criticism of John Mosellock, he came in and said, we're going to move our rental players for future assets. Hopefully guys that can help us in 2024, but certainly guys that can contribute in 25. And then beyond that, we, we don't want to prioritize too much of the way off into the future type of prospects. And I think he did a really nice job of that. Now, not every single guy is going to fit the category of what John Mozeliak set out to do. Basically, guys in the high minors, double-A or triple-A, and going to be able to contribute before too long. And pitching, pitching, pitching was obviously the mindset. But they end up coming up with a heck of a lot of pitchers, most of them at double-A or higher. And the ones that aren't, I want to talk about the Zach Showalter that they picked up in the Flaherty deal from Baltimore he may end up being the prize of the entire deadline. Takoa Roby, we kind of said that about with the Jordan Montgomery trade that happened the other day, that perhaps if this kid can get healthy, he would be a real interesting player as he progresses through the minor league system. But Showalter was kind of the, it was a throw-in from a perspective of we thought we already knew the entire Flaherty deal as it was being reported right up to the trade deadline on Tuesday where the Cardinals send Flaherty to Baltimore and they get back. Cesar Prieto, who is uh, another utility infielder, who's a guy that's got like about an 860 OPS, I want to say, between AA and AAA on the season. And what's really impressive about Prieto is, and he ends up slotting into the number nine spot, I believe, in the Cardinals' top 30, according to MLB Pipeline, the prospects list. What's great about this kid is in like 350-some-odd plate appearances this season, Cesar Prieto has struck out 27 times. That is incredible plate discipline. Not a huge power guy, just six home runs, but has like a 349 batting average 
and just 29 strikeouts and walks a decent amount as well. I think the on-base is about 390 for him between double A AA and triple A this year. And it's not one of those cases where he thrived at double A and then just, oh, the numbers are dipping at triple A. He's still hitting like 317 at triple A, has really solid numbers and 820 some odd OPS uh, at the triple A level in Norfolk this year with, uh, with the tides before the trade took place. So I imagine he'll go to Memphis and you kind of see the backfilling that'll end up taking place when the Cardinals kind of figure out what they do with, uh, you know, the Paul DeYoung spot. And, and they, they obviously made some roster moves today. Tommy Edmond was of course activated from the injured list. Uh, I believe Jose Fermin is back on the way up. I think he, he was brought up. Um, James nail is another guy that on the relief side, they brought Zach Thompson back. Andrew Suarez is back up and the bullpen construction makes very little sense, but it's just kind of like, the guys that you got at this point, but I'm thinking about the lefty-righty configuration. John King's a lefty, Zach Thompson's a lefty, Andrew Suarez is a lefty, Jojo Romero, who is essentially the Cardinals' closer at this point. Uh, pay attention to that for fantasy baseball, by the way. Like, I, I picked up Romero in one of my leagues because I'm thinking, if your league value saves, it sounds like Romero is going to get the first crack at saves for the Cardinals uh, as, as they go forward. Whether or not he acclimates to the role and pitches well remains to be seen, but I've talked about how I think he's probably the number one lefty in that bullpen for 2024, one of the very, very few guys that I'm willing to project will actually be in that bullpen. Other than Romero, there's nobody that I am really confident guaranteeing is going to be out there because I don't think they'll trade him. I think they're they're going to build around him with that bullpen and talk about a nice return for the Edmundo Sosa trade that was kind of like one that flew under the radar. Felt like it just made sense to move on from Sosa who wasn't really hitting in that season and take a flyer on a guy who can maybe hit triple digits out of your bullpen. Romero was a nice piece to pick up. He's the only guy that I'm really comfortable pro- comfortable projecting that's going to be in that bullpen next year. Like, Giovanni Gallegos could definitely see him as a offseason trade or I don't know about non-tender because he's still pitching well. He's got a 3.60 ERA, but I think he'll make like $6 bucks or so next year, and Cardinals will kind of have to grapple with what his role is and how good they feel about that. Ryan Helsley, you know, will get that raise in arbitration despite kind of having an injury-riddled season what does that end up looking like for the Cardinals? Could he be a trade candidate in the offseason as well? I don't know, guys, but Jojo Romero, I think, is going to be there. That is the uh, the one guy that I have gained a lot of confidence in his presence. And so uh, he's going to be the Cardinals' closer, I think, for the for the foreseeable future. And maybe then when Ryan Helsley returns, which I know he's kind of on a throwing program trying to get back, perhaps he ends up getting some of those opportunities again, considering that he was the closer before he went down with the injury. But that's a little bit of conversation about the backfilling that took place today for Memphis and the the bullpen configuration. But back to Prieto, I think he's just another guy that liked the trade with the Rangers when they picked up Thomas Sejaci, who's another utility infielder that they he's got some more pop. He's got like 15, 16 home runs this year. Uh, although I saw Kyle Reese post the first at bat that he took for the Cardinal affiliate. I think he's down there in Springfield. Struck out in the first at bat. I didn't see what else he did after that, but Kyle was just uh, being his Kyle self with that one. Love you, Kyle. But between JC and Prieto, I feel like you have some more Brennan Donovan type candidates. I, I I know it's probably an oversimplification to describe it that way, but you've got infielders who have clear upside offensively in, in various ways, and they also can play different spots on the infield, which gives you that flexibility that you like to have as a manager. Whether or not either of these guys end up as part of the Cardinals' future at the big league level I don't know, but I think either of them legitimately by 2024, you would you could be able to see at the big league level. Like, I hope they both go to the Arizona Fall League. That would be 
really good to see, I think. And they could definitely contribute at the major league level next year. It's going to depend on the logjam, though, and where that stands. Like, obviously, you're probably not having Taylor Motter back as part of the team next year, although he did have two hits tonight, so good for Taylor Motter. But you're going to have a healthy Nolan Gorman, ideally, you know, return to the lineup here pretty soon. And he plays second base primarily. Tommy Edmond, what's his status? I don't think they're trading Brandon Donovan. They're going to build around him. But it kind of does give you that flexibility to say, if they do trade anybody from the Major League roster, and it could be somebody that hurts, maybe I'm wrong, and they do trade a Gorman or a Donovan. Edmond would obviously hurt as well. I think he's got a really good skill set. But if they were to do a move like that, you would then be able to graduate one of these middle infielders, these utility infielders who both have good hit profiles, and stick them on your bench, stick them in the, the super utility role, and play them in the similar way that Tommy Edmond and Brendan Donovan both got their stars with the Cardinals. I could definitely see it playing out that way. Or you could end up taking one of these guys and teams could realize the value that they have, even though you just picked them up at this deadline. Perhaps they are packaged in the offseason to help you get the starting pitching that you need. Again, they've got to fill three spots in the rotation for next year, but to do it all via free agency might be a little bit unrealistic. Might be a pretty big ask of not only Mosellock, but Bill DeWitt to open the purse strings to the extent that he would need to to get three legitimate candidates to join that rotation. So perhaps one of those guys comes via trade and it comes from maybe trading from that position player glut. Yeah, they've added to it a little bit by adding these two utility infielders, but I also believe you just added talent. What Mosellock told me when I asked about Sejaci in that Rangers trade is he said to kind of make the the maximization of the talent and, and what we were looking to get out of that deal pan out, they just they didn't really have other pitching that they either had to offer or were willing to offer. And so you give up Stratton, you give up Montgomery, you want to make sure you're getting good pieces back. And I think adding Sejaci was exactly the thought process there. And then Prieto comes as part of the Flaherty deal. Also coming over in the Flaherty deal, let's get to the pitching side of it. I'll save my most intriguing prospect for last, and I'll explain why I'm excited about the young guy, 19-year-old Zach Showalter. But I'll talk about DrewRom.com first, and that's not his name. His name is just Drew Rom. I added the .com because it feels like it should be there, right? And I did look this up. I typed in DrewRom.com to see if maybe he could buy the domain, but it looks to be some woodworking website. I think it's in, like, Finnish or something uh, I don't speak that language or read it, so I don't really know exactly what's going on there. But there was like a lot of pictures of some nice like wooden items on the website, DrewRom.com. This is not an ad, but apparently he's not going to be able to buy it, the new Cardinals pitcher. Nevertheless, uh, AAA pitcher this year at Norfolk for the Tides, uh, which is a minor league team that I ap- actually happened to see in person last year when they were playing at the Nashville Sounds. Grayson Rodriguez started that game for the Orioles affiliate. Nobody cares. Uh, 5.34 ERA this season for DrewRom.com. 86 innings. Here's what's notable. 100 strikeouts. That's the one to circle. Last year at Double A Bowie, 82 innings, 101 strikeouts. That's the one to circle. All right, total of 120 innings pitched between Double and Triple A last year, 144 strikeouts in those 120 innings. Sensing a trend, when you go 100 Ks and 86 innings this year at Triple A, I like that. You don't love the 5.34 ERA, and you don't have to look very hard to figure out how he might have come by that ERA. It's not necessarily from giving up a ton of bombs. He's only given up seven home runs this year, 46 walks in 86 innings. Yep, that's the catch with DrewRom.com. He has not demonstrated a ton of great command. When you walk that many batters, it's a problem. Eight hit batters as well to go with the 46 walks. 
And so basically more than half the innings he pitches, he's at least giving up a walk or a hit batter this season. Is that something the Cardinals can try and squeeze out of him and find a way to hone in the craft and continue to miss bats the way that he has with the strikeouts, but not have such wild swings when it comes to the command of the strike zone? I don't know. That's kind of the nature of the prospects, though, that the Cardinals were going to get at this deadline when you looked at what they could possibly acquire for rental players. If they had included some Dylan Carlson or some Tyler O'Neill or some, you know, going crazy with the Nolan Gorman concept or Brendan Donovan or Tommy Edmond or any of these guys, like then maybe they would have gotten some bona fides back. But I think the reason that those guys didn't get traded is because not because the Cardinals considered them all untouchable. I think some of them they had preference not to trade. But I think the others, they just didn't get that type of piece back that they could have confidence would be an MLB fixture in their rotation because that is what they're after at this point. And if they weren't going to get that, they're going to push the can down the road. Well, they probably should kick it because that's the adage. They're going to kick the can down the road until the offseason and say, we can make some of those trades for pitching then. But teams were not willing to meet our asking prices on players that we did not have to trade today. They had players they had to trade today and within the last few days, and they were able to trade all of them, except for Drew Verhagen, who is an impending free agent, but I don't think that's the end of the world. Probably would not have had very much value. Other than that, though, the Cardinals got rid of the guys that they needed to get rid of, and they got value for the guys that they needed to get value out of. Dylan Carlson, with three more years of team control, did not need to be traded today if the offer was not suitable. The same is said for Tyler O'Neill, who's really starting to heat up, has looked good in the field, has looked good at the plate, has looked good on the bases, hit an opposite field home run tonight. I asked Ollie Marmel tonight about what he's been seeing from Tyler since he returned from the injured list, and he made the comment that Tyler O'Neill can be the best player on the baseball field in any given game. But it's a matter of him putting it together consistently, and Tyler really demonstrating a business-first mindset when he spoke at his locker after the game, just talking about stacking one day after the next of trying to play his baseball, stay healthy, which is obviously important for him. But I get the impression that the trade deadline and the rumors that surrounded it was something that kind of weighed on Tyler O'Neill a little bit. He said, I read the same stuff that you guys read. I try to stay away from it, but, you know, you inevitably see it, which I think is more candor than we hear from a lot of guys who say, oh, I don't read that stuff. I don't pay attention to that stuff. Sounds like Tyler O'Neill at least was had an awareness of the different rumors and things that would fly around. And yes, the reports came out that the Cardinals were probable to keep him, but I don't think that was a result of the Cardinals necessarily saying we we're planting our flag on Tyler O'Neill and trying to build around him. It was more about, yeah, we don't think he's got the trade value at this point to make it worthwhile. And that's not necessarily a glowing recommendation of Tyler O'Neill from the Cardinals, but I also think it's a recognition that he does have a really unique skill set and the talent is there. So why would you sell low on a talent like Tyler O'Neill when he's just coming off of an injury and other teams probably don't respect the value that he could bring if he's having a, a much more robust season and a healthy one. So I feel like that's where the Cardinals were at this deadline. They're not trying to sell low on Tyler O'Neill. If you want to come in with an offer that values him as the, the, the talented player that he is and can be, then maybe that would have been a different story. But he didn't get traded. O'Neill ends up saying, I'm glad that this is over and done with and I can just focus on playing my game for the next two months. Uh, definitely, I think, a proving ground for O'Neill. And I don't have a read on what could potentially happen as a result. You could see Tyler O'Neill play two really good months, and the Cardinals could decide, okay, great. We've got our left field situation figured out going into next year. Try to spend the offseason making sure you can do everything you can to be durable. But other than that, we don't have anything to talk about. We're back in on Tyler O'Neill as a starter every day. 
Or it could go the other way where the Cardinals could see good production from him and say that's what we needed to see to get the trade value where it needs to be. I bet we can flip a deal for him in the offseason and they could potentially move on from him for his final year before free agent eligibility after the 2024 campaign. I don't know exactly where the Cardinals will stand on that. It's going to be one of the interesting storylines to follow with this team as we go along. But when it comes to this specific trade deadline, I think that's the reason you didn't see the Cardinals land any bonafide pitchers for their rotation that they're going to slot right in. It's because they didn't trade the type of names that would have ultimately allowed that to be the case. And don't think that I'm saying that Montgomery or Flaherty or Jordan Hicks aren't quality players. You have to remember that service time and the route to free agent eligibility is the most important thing when it comes to these trade considerations. The Team control is everything. It's first, second, and third, and then you can go, well, what's the talent level of this guy? I know that might be hyperbolic, but I think that really is something that's important to understand because a guy like Jack Flaherty, even if he's a great pitcher, or a guy like Jordan Montgomery who's having a a career season, he's not going to command the same level of a lesser pitcher who's at least stable and, and consistently on the field but has two more years of team control attached. It's just not the world that exists when it comes to Major League Baseball trade negotiations. And so that's why for the Cardinals, they traded five rentals essentially at this deadline. And they got back a lot of guys that are interesting with upside, uh, but not necessarily anybody that's a bonafide because teams with those bonafides aren't giving them up for two months of a given player. Even if they believe that player can help them win a World Series, uh, it's just not the way these trades function at the MLB level. Let's talk about, though, before we get out of here, the final prospect that the Cardinals got in the Jack Flaherty deal to the Orioles. Zach Showalter is the 19-year-old pitcher's name. This is a guy that has a really interesting background when you think about 11th round pick in the 2022 draft. So just last summer, you know, 13 months ago, he was drafted, but in the 11th round. And you might say, well, that's probably why he's not on any top 30 prospect lists for MLB Pipeline uh, with the Orioles, although Orioles have a good system, and I have been told that he was actually on some of the top prospect lists from other publications like Baseball America. But when you look at 11th round pick, how could he possibly maybe rise through the ranks to already be considered a legit prospect for the future? Coming out of high school, he's now 19 years old. He'll turn 20 in January, so still a little ways to go before his 20th birthday. Here's what's intriguing about this Zach Showalter, though. Other than he's a right-handed starting pitcher, six foot two, 195 pounds out of Wesley Chapel, Florida, this kid didn't necessarily have to sign because he had a commitment to go play college baseball at South Florida. A lot of times, though, what happens when you get into the 11th round, you can sort of trump up the bonus that you would offer a guy in order to go way above slot value, and there's no penalty for doing so that late in the draft. I believe you can only go so much above slot early on in the draft before having to maybe consider some penalties. I don't know the ins and outs of exactly what that looks like. But bottom line, they took this kid in the 11th. They thought we can get him to sign if we offer him $440,000, which is exactly what they did. I think he made more money on the signing bonus than even like their fifth round pick from that same draft. So that's certainly notable that they would have offered him a, a much more robust signing bonus to try and convince him not to go the collegiate route. Because if you, if you draft a guy in the 11th round and he decides to honor his commitment to go play college baseball, you're just out of luck and you you lose that pick. I think earlier rounds you end up getting it recouped for a future season, but I don't know about the 11th round if that just kind of ends up being out of luck for your team. For instance, like first-round pick Jordan Walker did technically have a commitment to go play college baseball at Duke, but the Cardinals were like, we're drafting you in the first round. You're going to sign because we're going to pay you, you know, whatever – 
we're going to negotiate that and make sure that the signing bonus is enough to get you to do it. And when you talk about the slot value of a, of a first-round pick, it was never likely that he would have spurned the Cardinals uh, selected in the first round and to, to go to Duke. That wouldn't have really made a lot of sense. And so Jordan Walker, that was an easy sign. Zach Showalter maybe wasn't such an easy sign for the Baltimore Orioles, but they figured out a way to get it done anyway. But this is a guy that if he would have gone to a few years of college and then come back into the draft, he very well could have been a very early round pick within the first three or four rounds. Um, And on talent alone, it may have been possible to have picked him in the third or fourth round in that 2022 draft. However, teams were skeptical that he would be willing to sign. So that's why the Orioles have to pay nearly $500,000 on a signing bonus for a round that I don't know if the, the bonuses back in the 11th round would have been hundred grand or less. It, not nearly 440000 They went way above slot to get him to sign, and that's what you got to keep in mind when it comes to, okay, he's not your average 11th round pick. There were reasons that he slipped that low in the draft because most teams assumed that he would probably honor his commitment to go to college baseball. That's like the scouting side of it and a lot of stuff that you just have to kind of know going into it. Teams have a better idea than maybe we do in the public about what the individual player plans are. And it's not until you take a shot on a guy and draft him that you really get to find out. And I think the Cardinals took a kid in like the 20th round who was like a bonafide to go to a, a high major college baseball program. And he very quickly dismissed the Cardinals and was like, you're not, there's no signing bonus you can give me that would allow for it. He was like a, an early round talent that slipped way, way, way to the end because every team realized like he's not going to sign. So what's the point of wasting our pick? Uh, the Cardinals took a shot on it, and it, nothing ventured, nothing gained, really, because it was, I believe, a legitimate 20th-round pick. So it's not like it was the end of the world to lose out on the value of that. But nevertheless, these are kind of the fun and games that get played when it comes to the MLB draft. The Orioles played the game and won, and now the Cardinals get to be the beneficiary because Zach Showalter, who is not related to Buck Showalter, I know you might be thinking that, but he's not, but the Cardinals get to benefit because he's now in their organization. This year is the first time he's pitched professionally. Last year after the draft, he did not pitch. I don't know the reasons for that, but a lot of times young kids who maybe have pitched a lot in that final high school season, whatever the case might be, the team tends to bring them along rather slowly, and sometimes maybe they don't get into game action until the next professional season. Uh, Tink Hens is another guy that the Cardinals, they drafted him out of high school. They've been very careful monitoring his innings, and so I think it's a similar situation there with why Showalter did not pitch. I don't know about any injury he may have had last year. I know nothing about it, but I know that he didn't pitch until 2023. He joined the uh, FCL, the Florida Coast League, rookie ball level for the Orioles at age 19 to begin the season. And he had three starts, 10 total innings pitched there where he struck out 16 and allowed just one run. And that 0.90 ERA was enough for them to go, okay, no more rookie ball for this guy. We're going to send him to low A where the average age is about 2.7 years older than the 19-year-old that was pitching there in Showalter. And in 20.1 innings, 20 and a third, he's got a 3.1 ERA with 25 strikeouts. Walk rate's a little bit high, 10 walks in 20 innings, but more Ks than innings pitched and a 3.1 ERA at low A. So he's a guy that's shown well so far in the early stages of his professional career and for the age that he is. I think there's a lot to like about Zach Showalter. So I think he's a guy that I don't know what he'll be on the prospect list. I think he ended up at like number 23, right above or right below Adam Kloffenstein, wherever they put him, the guy that came over uh, from the Toronto Blue Jays trade that happened the other day with Hicks. I don't really know, but I don't really pay too much attention to those rankings, especially right now when everything is kind of in flux. I think Zach Showalter ends up being one of the steals of this trade deadline period for the Cardinals, but it's a little bit of a different story because you do have to wait for this one to develop. I think the ETA 
listed by MLB Pipeline as like 2026, which is the year that Moselak had stated was still a ways away, seems like a far time away, and, and not something they're prioritizing. But when you have a, a guy of that talent caliber fall into your lap on a trade like this, I think the Cardinals did pretty well when it comes to the Flaherty deal. It's how I feel about each of those deals. I feel like they have maximized and got the type of talent that they realistically could have for all of those trades. But let me know what you think. I'm interested for your thoughts, Cardinals fans. Comment below in the YouTube comment section. Let your voice be heard. How do you think the Cardinals and John Mozeliak did on this trade deadline where they had to operate as sellers, a little bit uncomfortable and not a situation they had previously been in? But how do you think they handled it with the haul that they came through with after trading away essentially five rental players and Hennessy's Cabrera, who was DFA'd? I think they did a pretty nice job, but I'll listen to your thoughts as well. Like this video, make sure to subscribe to this channel and comment below with your thoughts on how the Cardinals handled the deadline. That is going to do it, though, for this edition of the show. Appreciate you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on Be Safe Daily. Peace.